morning. Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently studying in the book of Isaiah. We'll look to study chapters 54 through 57 tonight, but we want to pull a section out of those chapters this morning to study in Isaiah chapter 56. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and just wave and get their attention, look at a Bible into your hands. It'll be marked to the passage that we're studying today for your convenience, and please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteous reward to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name they shall not that shall not be cut off. And also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. And every verse, every section of your word filled with your heart and your mind and your wisdom and your truth. And we thank you for the blessing of being able to explore these passages, this passage, these verses here this morning. We don't want to do it independent of you or apart from your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Spirit. Give us a fresh sensitivity to hear your voice, our Heavenly Father's voice through your word this morning. It means everything to us to hear you, Lord, have you to speak into our lives, and we ask that you would use your word in that way this morning. And we ask for that wonderful miracle to occur. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All people are free to come to the Lord for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins. And in fact, not only are all men and women free to do so, but God seeks it and he welcomes it. But the Bible also teaches, and indeed the passage that's before us this morning teaches us as well, that when we come to God for the forgiveness of our sins and seeking a relationship with him, we must come to God on his terms and not on our own terms. After all, God is God, 
And uh, we are not God. He is the creator, and we are but the creation. Important to him, significant to him, but not on the same level as him in any way. There's an old saying about the two great truths of the universe being, number one, there is a God, and number two, you're not him. And uh, never has those two truths, at least as a starting point, been more important than in our Western culture and in the culture of the United States of America, where there's the denial of God and then uh, the exalting of ourselves into that place. And what those terms, in terms of coming to God, what are those terms? What they are is essentially recognizing that I'm a sinner and that the wages of my sin is death, and then being willing to repent of my sin and as defined by God in my life, any and all sin, and then accepting God's uh, forgiveness of sins, accepting His salvation and everlasting life by putting my trust or my faith in Jesus as my Savior. And when a person does that, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. This is called a spiritual birth. Jesus referred to it as being born again by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes into our lives at that moment, and he provides us with the desire to obey God's Word and the life that unfolds as a result, and then the power to obey God's Word. And the result is this wonderfully changed life. Jesus declared that, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus declared as well, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. All of this has to happen on God's terms and not on our terms. What no one is free to do is to come to God and demand to be accepted by him independent of any intention of living a life marked by justice or righteousness, two words that he uses there in verse 1. And certainly no one is free to come to God, as many, many people endeavor to do, by demanding that God violate his own justice and his own righteousness and his own word in order to then accommodate their sin. Where a person then refuses to repent of their sins, they refuse to commit in any way to living a life obedient to God's Word and to His commandments and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when God, they cannot get God or get a local church to then accommodate their sin or redefine their sin as really something inconsequential, then they'll find fault with any church that makes that stand against them and against their unholy demands for accommodation. I think it's important to realize that the very first word that Jesus spoke at the beginning of his public ministry, the very first word that came out of his mouth when he began his public ministry following his water baptism at the hands of John the baptizer and following that season of great temptation, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, was the word repent. And he called upon the world and he said, Repent for the kingdom of God 
is at hand. And when Jesus called upon men and women to repent, there isn't any sense that he viewed this as some horrible thing or that he viewed this as some terrible message that he was delivering to the world or that he was delivering uh, to men and women. Clearly, he was under the impression that he was telling people something good. He was giving them good news. He proclaims it as a wonderful thing, an exciting thing, as if he's offering mankind a blessing and a privilege in repenting. And repentance is good news. It's good news to the person who wakes up one day and says, I'm sick of my sin. I'm sick of trying to redefine it. I'm sick of trying to believe that I know more than God. I'm sick of my guilt. I'm sick of how I treat other people. I'm sick of my reputation as a result. I'm sick of the emptiness in life that I experience independent of God. I'm sick of the loneliness of a life lived apart from God. And then one day they hear the word repent and they think to themselves, what, is somebody telling me about another direction in life? You mean there's another path than my sin and my selfishness? There's another road that I can walk on in this life? I'll be happy to give off of this one and get on to that one. And that's what repentance does. Repentance means literally to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in, about the decisions that I'm making in life. But it is a change of mind that produces a change of direction. It produces a change, a change of direction in my life. And to the person who's wanting to make changes in their life in terms of their direction and the road that they're on, then to them the message of repentance is a privilege. And they embrace it. And Jesus knew that people would embrace it when they finally came to that place as the Holy Spirit would then uh, lead them into that wonderful revelation of their need. It is the sinner's responsibility to repent of their sins, to put their faith in Jesus and to follow Him. And then when they do that, we do that, that person is then to be accepted by the rest of the body of Christ to be accepted by the rest of God's people. No matter how foreign they might look to us, no matter what their culture might be, their appearance, their speech, their mannerisms might be to me, no matter how broken or how mutilated they may come into the body of Christ from their old life in the world, no matter how damaged by the consequences of their sinful choices, no matter their background... And in verse 3, God told His people, the children of Judah, that no Gentile convert, no convert out of paganism was to ever feel or to experience from God's people once they repent of their sins and their life direction and become one of His children. And the one thing that they are never to experience, God said, is a sense of being excluded. And why would God speak this to the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah? Why would He instruct His people, the Jews, concerning this, except that this very thing was happening? 
Concerning the foreigner that is mentioned there in that verse, the foreigner in our passage refers to a Gentile, and the Gentile is very simply a non-Jew. The world is made up of two kinds of people physically, made up of Jews and made up of Gentiles. And concerning the foreigner, here God tells us that is here God tells us a foreigner is is a foreigner who is committed here. The foreigner that he's talking about in the passage is committed to being a disciple, a follower of the God of the Jews. He's not somebody that's coming to God and saying, listen, I want to become this quasi-Jew, this quasi-follower of the God of the Bible, but I don't want to give up my paganism. I don't want to give up my idolatry. I don't, it's not talking about that kind of a foreigner at all. Here is someone who comes, they understand the terms of coming to God, and they come humble and repentant and sincere, and they're walking the talk, and he feels, and yet, even though he's made this commitment to God, when he comes in among God's people, among the Jews, he feels like the Lord has utterly separated me from my people. In other words, he feels that no matter how much I love God, no matter how much I obey God, these people will never accept me. They treat me differently than everyone else. I'm kept at a distance. I'm treated like an outsider continually. I'm treated like a second-class citizen. These people make me feel as if I'm always slightly less than them, that I'll never be able to know and to love and to worship God the way that they do. And they give me this sense that God feels the same way about me as well. And they never should have been made to feel that way because... It isn't true. That wasn't God's attitude toward the Gentiles, toward the foreigners. It wasn't His attitude toward any of His children, whether Jew or Gentile. Well, if they weren't getting this sense of rejection or this shunning or coldness from God, then where were they getting it from? They were getting it from God's people. And in this case, from the Jews. And in all of this, this reference to the foreigners, to the Gentiles, we have prejudice against another member of God's family based upon their race, based upon their nationality, their ethnicity, you know what I'm saying, (laughs) ethnicity, their culture, or even based upon the fact that they weren't raised in a Christian home or they weren't born again at an early age, but they came to know the Lord later in life. And all of this in Isaiah chapter 56, God's prohibition of this kind of thing was just a shadow, a foretaste of the church, the spiritual family that Jesus would bring into existence through His death and His burial and His resurrection, wherein there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And all of this in chapter 56 is but a preparation for heaven where the saints of both the Old Testament and the New Testament will one day sing to Jesus in that heavenly scene, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And here it is, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 
And then Isaiah speaks of the eunuch who faced a different obstacle from God's people in his desire to be accepted by them. A eunuch was essentially a man in the ancient world who had all or part of their sexual organs removed. And in the ancient world, this was oftentimes done to a slave who was now going to be committed to serving the harem of some king or some uh, otherwise rich or powerful man who would have multiple wives, sometimes numbering in the dozens, in the hundreds. And in order for them to have a male presence there to do things that only men could do for women in that kind of environment, the physical demands of all of it, in order for the, the king to feel that his harem was safe from uh, the sexual intercourse by the slave that had been given that responsibility would have them castrated before giving them that position. No slave would have been particularly excited about becoming a eunuch. Think about what a terrible, terrible act of violence to commit against another human being. But in the ancient world, there were also some men who became eunuchs voluntarily. And they became eunuchs out of an expression of their pagan worship of their pagan uh, gods in order to, in some way, please the pagan god they were worshiping. They would have themselves castrated as an expression of their devotion or an expression of their commitment to the god. And this speaks of the kind of person who one day, by the grace of God, receives a revelation of the error of their way. They regret their former idolatry, the folly of all of their actions associated with the idolatry, and they had now turned away from all of that, become followers of the Lord, and the same God, the same God that we know and that we love. And we notice the obstacle that they faced. They loved God. They were committed to keeping the Sabbath. They were committed to keeping the laws. They were just. They were righteous. All of these things, they ought to have been wholeheartedly embraced by God's people, but they weren't. And we notice again the obstacle that they faced when the eunuch laments there in verse 3, Here I am, a dry tree. And in declaring himself to be a dry tree, he's speaking of his castration, speaking of the fact that he would never be able to bear children as a result of that. And apparently, this was how he was referred to or made to feel in the context of God's people. Yes, you see uh, Joe over there, you know, he looks on the outside, but you know, uh, he's not, he's a dry tree. And it was a derogatory uh, remark, a derogatory way of, of referring uh, to him, and apparently a kind of a remark that the eunuchs were hearing, even though uh, they knew God as much as any Jew knew God and loved God as much as any Jew, and made to feel as if to say, I'm a dry tree. It's all that I'll ever be to these people. It's all they'll ever see me for is what I once was, the consequences of my former life, the consequences of the decisions of my former life. They never look past it. They never let me forget it. They never see the new person that I am now because of God. 
What I was in my former life before coming to know Christ is all I'll ever be in their eyes. It it will always be my identity forever. They don't give second chances. They don't believe that God is the God of second chances. They don't believe in the miracle of becoming a new creation, that the old things can be passed, that all things can be made new. Until the day I die, all I'll ever be in their eyes is John the eunuch, the former drug addict, the former adulterer, the former liar, the former thief. All they see is what I used to be. All they see is my emasculation, all the physical consequences I bear from my long season of sin prior to coming to know Christ. All they fixate on is what I am outwardly and not upon what I've become inwardly. And here we have, instead of those who come to Christ mocked by the crushing, uh, mocked by the crushing uh, would, of their former life must be, instead of being met with a compassion and acceptance, they're stigmatized and made to feel excluded and different from everyone else based upon the sinfulness of their past or the choices of their past. And thus God instructs not the foreigner in this passage, not the eunuch in this passage, but the Jews, his people, concerning how he views the foreigner and the eunuch and of his promises to them, words that would have been a great comfort and a great relief to the foreigner and the eunuch, but were intended to sting and stand up straight the Jews, God's people, under the old covenant. And God declared in verse 5 concerning these despised foreigners and eunuchs that He will give them access to His temple and the fullness of His presence. He says, I know, there are no second-class citizens among my children. He will give them, again in verse 5, a place and a name within His walls. That is the city of Jerusalem a name better than that of sons and daughters. In other words, he'll make them a part of his family and speak highly and honorably of them. He will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Their status or their relationship with God is not temporal but eternal. He wouldn't change his mind. He was as committed to them not only in this life but in the life to come as he would be to anyone else. In verse 7, he will bring them to his holy mountain. In other words, he would give them joy within his temple. He would meet with them in the temple services. In verse 7 again, he will make them joyful in his house of prayer. He would inhabit their praises as well as anyone else. He would hear and answer their prayers as fully as he would anyone else's prayers. And prayer, of course, speaks of communion with God. And God was saying that they had an access uh, to as deep and intimate a relationship with God as anyone else had, including the Jews. And however poorly they might have been treated by others in their life, and even by God's people, God said they didn't have to fear that that's how He saw them or that they were a reflection on how He would receive and treat them. And in verse 7, he went on to say that he would accept their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, communicating his complete acceptance of them, his complete acceptance of their worship. 
He said, then that his house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the emphasis in that verse is the all and the nations. In other words, uh, for the Gentiles too, that that temple was built in order not only for the Jews to come to know God, to become deep in a relationship with God, to know and to fellowship and commune with God, but that that temple was there for the Gentile world as well that God loved them as much as He loves anybody else. And all along, God wanted His temple not only to be a place where Jewish people would worship Him, but a house of prayer for all nations. And the violation of this, the day of Jesus made Him righteously angry when He saw the great divisions that were set up in the temple in His day and the Gentiles put far away from the temple, and they even took the court of the Gentiles, the one place that the Gentiles could come and worship God, which was a a far distance away from the temple. And the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, not content to uh, relegate the Gentiles to the north 40 acres of the Temple Mount area, but then they began to fill it with the selling of doves and cattle and money changers, barely giving them room even there. And God, Jesus came in and he quoted the words of Isaiah chapter 56 when he cleansed the temple late in his public ministry and he was letting the Jewish religious leaders of his day know that God loves and he desires a relationship with all people no matter who and what they are by virtue of their birth, no matter who and what sin they've committed earlier in their lives, no matter what bad choices they had made in life, no matter what their past, that the Gentiles, if the Gentiles would turn to God and put their faith in Him, that He would forgive them and bring them into a relationship with Him. And Jesus had been candid about this all of His public ministry. John chapter 10 is representative of it when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And God goes on to speak about how He would treat anyone that came to Him, including foreigners and Gentiles and eunuchs in verse 8, and declared in essence that He would show the same grace to others that He had shown to the Jews, and the same grace He would show the same grace to others that He has shown to each of us as Christians. In other words, His salvation and His and the sanctification of any Jew. Anyone raised in a godly home required as much grace of God as the saving of Gentiles and eunuchs required of God. And sometimes it can be hard for a religious person or a person who's walked with God for a long time to remember that, to keep a focus on that, to realize that that's true of every single one of us. The Apostle Paul certainly understood it of himself when he declared to Timothy, this is a faithful saying... And it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom they are chief. No, he didn't say that. He said, of whom I am chief. 
And however, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all, show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And then Paul, as he thinks about the grace that was extended to him, though steeped in religion, though a man who was outwardly righteous, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a man that everybody would have looked at and said, that is a man, if any man deserves to get into heaven on the basis of their own merit and their own works, that is the man who deserves to do it. And when the Apostle Paul became aware of the sin and the wickedness, not of his outward actions, but of the attitudes of his heart and principally towards other people, and and became aware of the grace that was involved to save him out of the sin of the inside, the sin of the attitude, the sin of the heart, and what God had to extend to his life as a work of the Holy Spirit to pull him out of something he was so deeply mired in and so thoroughly steeped in, he ends this passage by praising God for his grace to even save a religious person like him. And he said, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul came to realize what is true of each of us as Christians, that each of us has been saved among many other reasons, but this is one of the reasons, in order to give hope to sinners that God will save and accept them as well where someone would be able to look at our lives individually and say, you know, I see something of myself in that person. And if God would save them, perhaps he would save me as well. And we are saved in order to bring hope to foreigners and to eunuchs, not to condemn them, to give them hope that though they have grown up far from God, though they have lived far from God, to bear and to, and that they bear deep and obvious wounds for having done so, that God loves them and will forgive them and make them into a new creation as they put their faith in Christ. And then after having done so, not to then shun or stigmatize them for who and what they were, but to recognize that they are a new creation. The old things have been passed away. All things have been made brand new. And to give God the praise and the glory for doing the same miracle in their lives that he has done in ours. Allow me to close with, by speaking for a moment or two in terms of application. And speaking for a moment to the huge disconnect that can occur not only between God and his people over repentant foreigners and eunuchs, but also to the huge disconnect that can occur over how God views foreigners and eunuchs and sinners even before they become saved. It's interesting that during Jesus' public ministry, His greatest opposition did not come from sinners, never. His greatest opposition was almost solely uh, concentrated from coming from the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Jewish religious leaders who claimed to know God better than he did, 
who claimed to know more about God and the heart of God than he did. And among their accusations against Jesus was that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners and that he received sinners and that he ate with them. And when they said that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, that word friend is an interesting one. It, 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 it means it comes from the word phileo in the Greek. And phileo is a description of love. Uh, we get our city of Philadelphia uh, from the very word. And, and Philadelphia is nicknamed the city of brotherly love based upon the name of, of the city. And so... It's speaking about this phileo, that he is a friend, a phileo. And, and phileo love speaks of love on the emotional plane, the brotherly love. In other words, somehow these sinners knew that he loved them and that he cared about them. And this was a huge stretch for the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the religious Jews, the sanctified, the cleansed of Jesus' day, and unknowingly, like the Jews of Isaiah's day, they had become the biggest obstacle to Gentiles and eunuchs and even other Jews coming to know about God's love for them and his desire to save them and the miracle that he would make of their life if they would choose them. That time in life when a person realizes that, yes, up to this point, the single great thing that has come between me and God and a relationship with God is my own sin. But then to try and draw close to God in some religious environment that's supposed to be associated with Him and to realize now my greatest obstacle to coming to know God and entering into His blessings is no longer my own sin, but those that call themselves His people. And we can be prone to do the same things even as Christians. There's a funny thing that can happen to us as God's people once we've been saved for a while. And by the way, I'm not addressing some local problem. It was just on my heart to teach. But there's a funny thing that can happen to us as God's people once we've been saved for a while. God begins to clean up our lives. He makes changes that only He could make. He makes our lives into a miracle, as great a miracle as any miracle you want to read about in the New Testament. And then there is this temptation to get proud and self-righteous and to think that God's attitude towards sinners has somehow changed in the time since he saved me. And that to think that now that I'm in, God ought to kind of tighten things up a little bit for who he's willing to associate with and who he's willing uh, to bring into his kingdom. In Isaiah's day, and even today, foreigners are messy. Sinners are messy. Eunuchs are messy. And they're complicated, and they're needy. And they always have been, and they always will be, just like we were. And how can a foreigner or a eunuch or a sinner learn about Jesus and Christianity if they're not allowed to come close to us, close to our individual lives, close to a church, to have access to our lives, to feel free and welcome to access a church, our church, any church? 
And again, I say, I'm not saying anything corrective related to our fellowship, but I don't think it's harmful ever to be reminded of the heart of Christ in this way. And sometimes it's possible to give off the vibe to sinners that everyone in a church is saved, that churches are for saved people, or that if you do come in as an unsaved person, you've got something like two weeks to either become a Christian or take yourself and all of your baggage and all of your difficulties and all of your messiness someplace else until you are willing to turn your life over in kind of an orderly and and, uh, quick fashion. Come back when you're serious because people like that coming to a church for a long time without getting saved can really make things messy for us. People may get the wrong impression about the church. They say that on average, those who become Christians do so after hearing the gospel seven times. Now, some of you in this room became a, a Christian upon hearing the gospel for the very first time or the second time, or the third time. So that has to mean that there are other people who don't become a Christian until they've heard it for the 40th time, or the 50th time, in terms of just the law of averages. And in order to hear the gospel even a second time, or a 20th time, or a 50th time, all that time takes time, and it takes patience on the part of God's people related to their lives. I know of one man in this church who had been raised in another religion. And he started coming here, and he sat in uh, this church for a year and a half, uh, listening to the worship music, uh, listening to the sermons, to the teaching, listening to all of the prayer, watching you. You didn't even know it. Watching you, watching me before his questions were answered. And it took a year and a half before he felt comfortable and confident coming out of the religious system that he came out of to then put his faith in Jesus for salvation. And sometimes it takes a lot of time, depending on where people are coming from in life. Not just time, but a lot of time. This is the interesting thing about this man. We could tell many stories, but I'm thinking about this man in particular. He's a nice man. Well-mannered, very, very polite person. I mean, you would have looked at him and said, this guy's absolutely a Christian. I mean, he's an advertisement for Christianity, for goodness sakes. You would have thought that he was a Christian on the basis of outward appearance. But what happens when an obvious uh, homosexual, uh, an obvious lesbian, complete with a full butch appearance comes into the church and it takes her 18 months to investigate the claims of Jesus and the offers of Jesus to then give her life to him. Would she feel as free and as safe to do so? And what about the gangbanger or the drug addict or the prostitute or the atheist or whatever race or culture or sin-filled background that a person may come from. And we think about where else can they best come to see and to learn about Jesus than in a local church. 
and the importance of that kind of an atmosphere. I think it's important never to assume that everyone sitting in a church is a Christian or that they have to be a Christian in order to come here or in order to be welcomed here without being shunned or to be treated as an outsider. It is a wonderful thing for the Lord to bring a sinner into a church or into our own individual lives in order for them to learn about the lover of their souls. And it's a great privilege, and it is a great, great responsibility. And I can't help but notice that this passage in Isaiah chapter 56 is absolutely unflinching in its commitment to God's truth and His standard and the necessity of justice and righteousness among God's people, but that it is also dripping with love and the compassion of God for people, the very combination that we find in Jesus himself. You realize he never compromised in a single commandment in the law of Moses, not once in his life. A friend of sinners. Friend of publicans, eating and drinking with them. And yet in all of that interaction, he never felt compelled to, nor did he, violate a single law of the law of Moses, not in word or in deed. Do we think that Jesus ever failed to tell people of their need to be saved and to repent and to trust in him for salvation. I don't think he did that. Do we think that when he ever talked to, that he ever talked to sinners or the religious or to the secular concerning the word of God, that he ever did it with a wink and a nod? Listen, God's kind of uptight about this area, you know. But I mean, this is the 21st century. We don't have to, you know, go crazy about that and all. And so don't take that too seriously. I have an obligation to say it to you, but, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Never. Never. And yet sinners felt safe with him. Safe to come with all of their questions, all their doubts, all their flaws, all of their sins. And we're only truly the body of Christ. We're only truly like Christ. And they feel, the same, feel safe to do the same thing with us, whether collectively in a church service like this, in the church as a whole, or individually. We never abandon our convictions concerning right and wrong. But we don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians because they're not a Christian yet. And so God help us never to shun or to exclude another Christian based upon their race or their nationality or their ethnicity or their culture or the sinfulness of their past but instead to encourage every Christian in the greatness of God's love and His grace and His forgiveness and His acceptance. It's the great point of the passage. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, 
You haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins yet. Never even knew you needed to do that. God loves you. He wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants to begin a personal relationship with you. But you must come to him on his terms. Because he is the only person who knows what he's talking about when it comes to our salvation. You need to repent of your sins, turn away from it, be willing to do that, and to turn to God this morning and say, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life, and I do believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you love me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins, and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day, and that he is the Savior, and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I give you my life today. Make me a miracle like that man up in front was talking about you being able to do. And when a person prays something like that to the Lord and means it, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and make you into something altogether new, something like his son. Don't ever not come to the Lord because you say, there is no way I could live the Christian life. Join the crowd. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. You come to God with all of your needs, all of your messiness, all your frailties, and he will add as much of himself as he needs to to your life to make a miracle of you, and he will love to do it. No matter what you've been, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you've seen, he would love to do that for you this morning. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service. They're the people you want to come to this morning and talk to about this and begin the relationship with God that you've been created for. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for the strength <clears throat> of this passage. The strength of it concerning holiness and justice and righteousness and salvation. But how it is equally strong in love and compassion and patience, Lord. And we just pray for a work of your Holy Spirit upon us as a church, as a whole, and upon our lives individually. Would you help us, Lord, to never ever allow what would be, who would be defined as a foreigner or as a eunuch today, to ever f make them feel like an outsider or excluded or a second-class citizen or a person who will never be able to know you the way that somebody else might. Lord, make us quick to encourage every single Christian in the greatness of your love and your acceptance and the potential of their life in your hands. And then, Lord, to carry that same attitude into the messiness of the world that is all around us because of sin and because of sinners. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit 
to help us to strike that balance that we see in our Savior. And we ask that you would continue to work in our lives to produce that for your glory, for our good, Lord, and for the good of a world that is watching our lives and wanting not only to see holiness and to see righteousness, but to see love and grace as well. We know you hear our prayers, and so we ask this sincerely, and we look forward, Lord, to you taking us, each of us, into that place in an even greater measure. We beg you for it, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.